Traditionally, when a condemned prisoner is going to be executed, they allow them to have a last meal and last words. So I was looking up some of the things that they eat and words that they say, and I discovered there's quite a range. Some order the equivalent of a mini banquet, and their last words are really rants of rage and hatred and anger. Others refuse the last meal. They don't want anything to eat. And their words are filled with remorse and sadness and asking for forgiveness. And then I thought to myself, what happens when you're an innocent person who's been condemned? Because I'm sure that happens, perhaps rarely, but it does happen. What do you want for your last meal? Do you even have an appetite? And what are your last words? Bitterness? How about Jesus? What are his last words? What was the last meal that he wanted to have before he was crucified? We find out in Luke chapter 22, and that's where I want you to turn right now, or turn on if you use electronic Bible. And while you're doing that, I want to welcome those who are joining us online, and a lot of people are on spring break, and I'm glad we're not. How about you? <laughs> we got to be positive, folks, all right? Luke chapter 22. Got it open there? Let's look at what it says. I want to begin reading at verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now come down to verse 14, please. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, before I suffer. Now, when I read those words, a question popped into my mind right away. And the question is, why? Why does the most innocent person in the universe who's ever lived, who's about to be beaten beyond recognition, crucified, treated like a criminal, whose closest friends are going to run when he needs them the most. Why does he eagerly desire to eat the Passover meal, the meal that he chooses, and to speak some of the final words that he shares? In fact, when it says, when Jesus says, I eagerly desire to eat this meal with you, in the original language that's used there, that word eagerly, or that phrase eagerly desire, literally means I, you can translate this way, I lust. That means from the depths of my being, I just have this, this passionate desire to do this with you. So let's find out why, if we can, as we keep reading in the passage of Scripture. Why don't you come down now with me to verse 16. He says to them, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Father, this, he said, and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. 
The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Now, in traditional Passover, what would happen is you would have a host. In this case, it's Jesus. There are four cups of wine, and he would have taken the first cup of wine, and he would have spoken a blessing, and then usually the youngest child there or a young child there would ask a question. And the question would be, why is this night different from every other night in the year? And then the host begins to explain and describe what it means. And sometimes they would quote from the Torah. For instance, they might quote from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 7, which says, when we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror, with signs and wonders. That's referring to the plagues, of course, and then the dividing of the Red Sea. Or they might quote from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. And all of a sudden, what Jesus does as you read this passage, is he breaks with tradition in terms of the Passover. The Passover had been this reflection backwards of everything God did when he led Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land. What Jesus does is he comes and he takes it forward. He, in essence, says, everything that the Passover means, I'm fulfilling now and for the future. He's saying, you know, back then it was about how Israel was afflicted by the Egyptians and how Moses emancipated them and brought them into the promised land. I'm here to tell you right now that I am the new Moses. And the affliction I'm going to deliver you from is the affliction of sin and death. I'm leading mankind on an exodus to eternal life, which is experienced by what I'm about to do on the cross, the forgiveness of sins. Radically different than any Passover they'd ever celebrated before. And then something terrible happens at the meal. Something that is audacious and kind of sets you back when you think about it. And it's described in one simple little verse. It's, it's in verse 24. It says that while all this is going on, a dispute also arose among them, that's the 12, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Can you imagine? Jesus is pouring his heart out. He's talked about this before. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to suffer. And it's like it goes right over these guys' heads. It's like for a moment, maybe they're kind of like, oh, wow, that's bad. I wonder who's going to cause that whole mess to happen. By the way, guys, you know I'm the most important. You can, you can imagine a guy like Peter kind of saying to the other guys, you know, hey, guys, he called me the rock, right? So if he called me the rock, then... I deserve to sit at his right-hand side. I am really, truly the greatest of all the rest of you. And I can hear another guy, another disciple saying, yeah, right, he also called you the devil. So take a back seat, Pete. (laughs) Or John. You know, John, the beloved, right? Hey, guys, 
Humbly speaking, I'm the greatest. <laughs> After all, I mean, me and Jesus, we're really tight. And I can hear one of the other guys say, okay, John the Beloved, didn't you also get called one of the sons of thunder? Where's the love, bro? And then, have you ever read in the Gospels when the mother of James and John, who I'll call Jimmy and Johnny at this point, comes to Jesus and it says that she bowed very low. And she said, command that my sons will sit, one at your left hand and one at your right hand. Now, Marshall and I have, have a lot of Jewish friends that we've known over the years that we love and care for. And it's always fun to kind of hear their conversations and you know, they kind of tell stories on each other. And, you know, the idea of the Jewish mom who just loves to brag about her kids, right? And you can imagine this mom of James and John, you know, she wants to be able to go back and when they're all bragging about how their son is a lawyer and a doctor and a rabbi, she can say, well, my sons, they're vice president of the universe. It's just, you look at that verse and you just go, how, how can these guys like be disputing, arguing with each other, who's the greatest? What does Jesus say to that? Watch this, verse 25. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And John, in John chapter 13, describing the same incident, adds more color to it. He says that Jesus actually gets up and he washes the feet of his disciples. He washes the feet of Judas, who's going to betray him. He washes the feet of Peter, who's going to deny him. And he washes the feet of all the rest of them who are going to doubt him and who are going to run from him. And as my friend Hen Robinson has said, and I think I quoted him before here, it is really hard to wash the feet of people who are kicking you in the teeth. And that's about what they were going to do to Jesus. In essence, what Jesus says to them is, guys, listen, I, I have come to do this. I've come to go to the cross to create a radical community so different from what I'm experiencing with you guys right now. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. The rivalry's got to go. The competition's got to go. I envision a community of believers, of followers, who sacrifice for each other, who love each other, who serve each other, who build each other up, who do not take advantage of each other. When Jesus talks about benefactors here, he's talking about the Greco-Roman world where you had a patronage system. And what would happen is people would look for people in need, which sounds great at first. But they kind of look to see who has a need, and then they would decide in their minds, if I help that person, what can I get back? So I'm going to help person A because I'll be able to get back some political favors. I'll help person B because they're in such bad shape, they'll basically be indebted to me the rest of their lives. I'll help person C because, you know, they have connections. And so they would help in order to get back. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be like that. 
I don't want you to help somebody in order to get something back. I just want you to help them. I, in fact, I want, you to be able, I want you to give them the shirt off your back. And never expect to have it returned to you again. I ask you a question. When you think about the body of Christ, because that's what Jesus is talking about here. When you think about Wooddale Church for a moment, are we that kind of radical community? Have your experiences at Wooddale Church in the student ministry, in the adult ministry, in children's ministry, and we're together, is, it, is that who we are? Are we sacrificers? Do we serve? Do we lift up? Do we love for love's sake? Do we not expect anything back? And as soon as I ask you that question, you know what I've just done to you? I've just made you a judge. Because the tendency for us when we hear a question like that is to then step back and begin to judge other people. Because we start thinking about our experiences. And we start calculating our minds, well, you know, this place, I've, I've had some unfriendly experiences here. I've had some people ignore me. Dale, you've walked right by me sometimes, not even smiled or said hi to me. I've, uh, I, I've felt taken advantage of at times. But see, that's, that's not what you're supposed to be doing right now. You're not supposed to ask the question about the rest of the body. That question, you're supposed to ask about yourself. I'm supposed to ask about myself. Because I can't wait around for you to get it right. I just got to do what's right. Because it's, really it's really easy to complain about everybody else. It's really easy to get into rivalry. I was talking to a millennial this past week who attends our Loring Park campus. Young man, I was so impressed by him. And, uh, you know, millennials, um, uh, by nature, have, a, have an ability to sniff out hypocrisy like a mile away, like a shark in the ocean, right? And not only that, but um, you know, millennials sometimes have kind of a, I don't know, somewhat of an idealistic view of life and they tend to see, you know, the hypocrisy of adults. They tend to see what, you know, injustices, etc. And we were talking about that and how it exists in the church and, and how the church sometimes is unjust and, and unfair and people can be hypocritical and can be mean, etc., etc. And then he said something to me that I thought was so profound. He said, I see, he's, he's talking about himself, he says, I see it, but, he says, I choose to love over my laments. I choose to love over my laments. And he kept saying that, and I was so impressed by that. Because it's really easy to lament about what's wrong, right? What's wrong in the world, what's wrong in politics, what's wrong in the church. What Jesus is saying is, I want a community that loves over its laments. Tim Keller, commenting on this passage of Scripture, says, you know, what Jesus is describing here is really, when you think about it, the marks of a true community of Christ. And he describes three of those marks. I put it in different words than he does, and maybe, uh, you know, a couple different applications than he does, but, but basically I agree with Dr. Keller, and here are the three marks that I see in this passage of Scripture. One is a mark of a common bond. When you're really in a community of Christ where, where you've come to grips with who he is and what the cross has done, it creates a bond between you and other believers. I can travel halfway around the world, I can meet, and you know, I, I go to India a lot, Nepal, on behalf of our church, our ministry, I've been to Vietnam, I've been, MK, right? I go around the world and I meet, you say, what's an MK, missionary kid? Um, I go around the world and I meet people and 
They look entirely different than me. They don't have my pale white skin. They have beautiful dark skin. <laughs> they speak a totally different language, and I don't speak theirs, and they don't speak mine. They eat food that would just burn my mouth inside out. <laughs> and their customs are so different from our customs. But when I meet them and I know they're a believer and they know I'm a believer, I tell you within minutes we're hugging each other. We have this bond. We have the same spirit, the same Lord. We're sinners who've been forgiven. We're not better than each other. We need each other. And sometimes, folks, it's tighter than it is with your own flesh and blood family. Now, do you feel that at Whitdale Church? You, know, you gotta be careful again because right away, what do we do? We start thinking about what somebody hasn't done for us. The question is, will I be that kind of follower of Jesus? Will I start that radical movement? Second mark here is, you know, this passage teaches us that, that God wants a community that loves indiscriminately. In other words, that loves without discrimination. You know, Paul says that the power of the gospel is for, is for all of us, for everyone. Now, it's, you know, it's not preference towards Jews or Gentiles. It has nothing to do with whether you're male or female. It has nothing to do with what color your skin is. It has nothing to do with where your socioeconomic status is. Christ died for all. So it's like Jesus saying, stop competing with each other, guys. My sacrifice is for everybody. So the challenge then, if we're going to be an authentic community of Christ, is to say, all right, so can I and will I love without discrimination? And again, I, I, I can't sit there and go, have I been discriminated against because of the fact that I don't have hair or, you know, whatever it is. I just got to sit there and go, no, I'm, I'm just going to love. Because love is contagious, don't you agree? When you've really been loved, it is contagious, isn't it? Yes. And it spurs love in your own life, in your own soul. Then, one of my favorite marks in this passage of Scripture, you know, it teaches us that in God's community, losers can become leaders. See, where do you get that? Let me show you. I want you to go to verse 31. Jesus speaks up and he says, Simon! Simon. Now, whenever your name, in the ancient world especially, was called twice, it meant sit up, pay attention. When my dad wanted to get me to sit up and pay attention as a kid, he always called me by my middle name, which is Harrison. And if I ever heard my dad say Harrison, he, never, he always said it with kind of a, a bit of an authority. Harrison, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> or else I was going to have to listen carefully because like, these are some big instructions coming down, right? Simon. Simon, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now, here's what's interesting. He says, Simon, Simon, I'm talking to you, Simon. But then he says, Satan has asked to sift all of you, not just Simon, but all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. You know, in the ancient world, they would oftentimes take the grain, heads of grain, and they would place it in a box, and it would have like a grate on the bottom, and they would sift it back and forth and back and forth so that the shell would rub off, and all that would be left is the kernel. 
In essence, what Jesus is saying here, according to a theologian named Klaus Skilder, is that Christ wants to sift us back and forth and back and forth. And, or, I'm sorry, Satan wants to sift us back and forth, back and forth, to get rid of the kernel so that all that is left is the shell. And the kernel he wants to get rid of is faith. And Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. So I don't know if literally Satan is actually saying to God, I want those 12 because they're no good, they're failures. Or if Jesus, in essence, means that, you know, Satan is after you guys. He wants you guys. He wants to destroy your faith. And Peter, listen, Simon, Simon, listen. He really wants you. And you're an easy target, Simon, because you think you know yourself and you don't know yourself. You think you're better than these guys? You're not. When it comes down to clutch time, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times, Simon. And it's going to devastate you. But I have prayed, I've interceded for you that you don't lose your faith. And he says, and when you turn around, which means when you repent, when you finally humble yourself and admit you're not better than anybody else, and you come back to me, he says, I want you to keep leading. I want you to strengthen your brethren. I want you to become the rock that I always said you would become someday. And I just love that passage of scripture. It gives me hope. It gives me hope that when I mess up and screw up, God doesn't kick me off the team and say, I don't want you anymore. God says, when you come to your senses and you repent, get back to work. You're on the team. Tim Keller has this comment, I don't think I'm gonna quote it exactly, but it goes something like this. He says, in the world, in the culture, the greatest leaders are considered those who are the biggest successes. But he says, in God's kingdom, the greatest leaders are the biggest repenters who throw themselves on God's grace and truly become humble. And I love that. I just feel like that gave me hope today. Because all God needs is for us to say, I'm, I'm a sinner, I need your help, I'm sorry, God, and to lay it all at the foot of the cross, and he forgives and he redeems us and he uses us. Does that, I hope that encourages you today. Gives you a sense of, wow. Because a lot of times what happens is we blow it, and you know, what blowing it means to one person may be entirely different to another person. It's just who you are and what you've been through in life. But man, sometimes, you know, when you're blowing it for the 700th time, you really start to believe God doesn't want you anymore. The devil tells you that, you tell yourself that, other people tell you that, but God is a God of mercy and grace who forgives and forgives. But you know, I look at this passage of Scripture, and I realize that in this passage of Scripture, there's a description of, of really the tenderness of the love of God. You know, normally at the Passover, they, they have the bread, the cup, but they, and they also have lamb. They'll eat lamb. That's what was commanded back in Exodus. Now, some Jews, they won't do that because the sacrificial system stopped after 70 AD, so they won't eat lamb anymore. Other, other Orthodox Jews will. But the lamb seems to be missing at this meal till you take a really good look at this passage of Scripture and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, the lamb's there. <laughs> He's hosting the meal. Jesus is, in essence, presenting himself as the sacrifice. 
Why does God choose the metaphor of a lamb? I mean, why not, why not a wild boar? I mean, you don't look at a wild boar and go, oh, isn't that sweet as it's charging you, right? <laughs> well, why does he choose a lamb? And what we're tempted to think is, well, he chooses a lamb because it's precious, and I don't know, baby lambs are very precious. It's defenseless, it's vulnerable to disease and to coyotes and other wild animals. May you feel compassionate toward a little lamb. But that's not really why he chooses the lamb. The reason he chooses the lamb, I think, is because, is because God's wanted to convey something to us. And what he's wanted to convey to us is how much he loves his son. Because that's his lamb. So Marsh and I have some friends uh, back on the West Coast. And many years ago now, they had a lamb that they were raising. And at night, a, a coyote got in and just mutilated and killed the poor little lamb. And one of our friends was just absolutely devastated by it. Why? Because that was his lamb. He felt responsible for that lamb. Cared about that little creature. Why couldn't he have been there to rescue that creature when it happened? God chooses a lamb in order to demonstrate to you and me how much he loves his son. And as we come to grips with how much the father loves the son, all of a sudden, we realize how much the Father must love us, that he's willing to give that which he loves so much as a sacrifice for us. No wonder Paul said in Romans chapter 8, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is saying is, you're not going to separate somebody who loves their lamb so much they sacrifice their lamb for you. You're not going to separate that kind of love. Because that love paid a huge price for you. You know, one of the um, challenges that ancient shepherds and even modern shepherds face is when a lamb is born and the ewe, the mother, dies. You know what they call a lamb whose mother dies? You know what they call it? They call it an alien. And their challenge is to get the alien in relationship with another mother, you. And the challenge is to get the you to accept the alien. Because by nature, the you is only going to accept her own. And she knows her own by scent. So when a little lamb's mama dies, the shepherds will look for another you whose lamb has died. 
And they'll take that lamb and they'll skin it. And they'll take the skin of that lamb and they'll put it on the little alien. And they'll bring the little alien to that ewe who's lost her little lamb. And the ewe will sniff that skin and know that it belongs to her. And will adopt that little lamb. Or in some cases, what they'll do is they'll look for a ewe who's just given birth. And if she looks strong enough that she'll be able to feed and take care of two lambs, they'll go and get the little lamb that's an orphan, the alien. They'll take some of the afterbirth, the blood and the water from the, the birth of that other lamb, and they'll smear it all over the little alien. And then they'll bring that little alien to the ewe, and the ewe will sniff it, and the ewe will think to itself, I don't remember giving birth to it, but it smells like mine. So it must be mine, and she'll take it. The Bible tells us that God has dressed us in the robes of his son's righteousness. The Bible tells us that the blood of Christ covers our sins. So that in essence, God sniffs us, and when he smells us, he smells his son. And he says, oh, you're mine. You're mine. That's grace. That's love. That God would do all of that for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, as we prepare to enter into these couple of weeks, Lord, of the cross and of the empty tomb, Lord, I, I pray that you would arrest our attention from just going through the motions, from just, from just doing this, God, because it's something we do every spring. And we give a little bit of lip service and a little bit of thought to it, but we really don't soak in it. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for us, this body here. Lord, this Easter, would you just please help us to stop and help us to meditate on and contemplate on the intensity of your love for us. Father, the world may not love us, the world may discriminate against us, the world may mistreat us, but you love us. You paid a huge price for us. And when we suffer, we don't suffer by ourselves. Our Savior suffered for us. He shares in our sufferings. He knows our heartache. He knows our pain. He who is perfect gave everything up. And Father, I love your word in Ephesians 2.19 where through the Apostle Paul, you inspired him to say that we who once were aliens, like that little lamb, Strangers are far off. We've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. God, help us to, to rejoice in our relationship with you. And just thank you so much for this picture of grace. This grace of yours that is greater than my sin. Marvelous grace. Wonderful grace. 